Hello, everyone. I'm Lauren Consul, uh, one of the attorneys here at the New York Prosecutors Training Institute, NIPTI. And today I have Avi Goldstein, Assistant District Attorney in the Warren County District Attorney's Office here with me to discuss a recent case that he had involving some interesting issues on an impaired driving prosecution. Thanks for being here, Avi. Hi, thanks for having me. So just tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll jump into the background of the case. All right. My name is Avi Goldstein. I'm an assistant district attorney at the Warren County DA's office in Lake George, New York. Uh, I've been with the DA's office about three and a half years, double checking my math as I say that, but I've been practicing since about 2015. And I do a lot of DWI work, a lot of controlled substance work, and, you know, I, I love it here. Well, that's great. Certainly, you're in a lovely location. So uh, tell us a little bit about the background of the recent case. Let's start with what were the charges for this defendant? Sure. So it was e-felony DWI, one prior within the past 10 years. And then there were aggravated unlicensed operation AUO first charges under two different theories, one being the revocation associated with that prior conviction and the other one being for a refusal to submit to a chemical test in connection with a pending DWI charge at the time my incident occurred on the 4th of July of 2020. Okay, so let's back up a little bit. The general criminal history of this defendant proved to be uh, very interesting in this trial. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that developed? Yeah, so it kind of plays into two different aspects of it, because ultimately what makes this interesting is that the defendant denied the special information all respects. He he refused to admit the prior revocations. He refused to admit that he was the individual who was previously convicted. So it became kind of interesting, the interplay of multiple theories of AUO. And then he happens to have a number of past convictions for criminal impersonation, false impersonation, things of that nature giving false names, essentially, when he's been arrested. So it created some interesting kind of, I guess, hurdles that we had to work around to prove that he was the person associated because some of the criminal cycles were not jiving with each other on the criminal history report. And there were also cycles that weren't supported by fingerprints because of the false names and things like that. Okay, so it sounds like you had quite the challenge on your hands with this one. Those prior convictions, did they happen to be from your jurisdiction or from different jurisdictions out of state? They were New York State convictions. They were mostly from Nassau County. That's an interesting problem that we get up here a little bit, being a vacation hotspot, good place to come and visit. We get a lot of people from all over the state, all over the country coming here. And so I actually did speak with Katie Ziza in Nassau County. She was a great resource, very helpful to kind of get the file and figure out what had happened down there. But the ones that were really an issue for me were mostly from Nassau County. Okay. Well, thankfully, we do have Katie is a great resource down there. So I'm glad that she was able to help out. So how did you go about proving the prior conviction for purposes of the DWI? We'll start with that. So there are a lot of ways to prove the prior conviction. I found out I'm, I'm in a lucky or small fraternity of ADAs who've had to prove one of these. It was kind of in 
odd presentation. I mean, the defendant essentially, his argument was more on the AUO, but there were elements of, you know, he is a different corporate entity. He, he kind of played into the sovereign citizen argument that he wasn't the person who was convicted of this DWI back in 2012, that it was someone else. He's reincorporated himself, kind of more of that, kind of a more professional version of the criminal impersonation. But we ultimately went with testimony from a court clerk from Nassau County Court where the conviction occurred. And we were also able to get some testimony from our trooper in this case as to admissions that were made regarding prior convictions. Okay, great. So as far as the testimony from the court clerk, uh, I know that ultimately the clerk ended up testifying remotely, actually via Microsoft Teams, if I remember correctly. How did that come about? Well, my co-counsel and I did go down to Nassau and we served subpoenas. We got a copy of the file, just kind of part of our regular trial prep, leave no stone unturned. But after we served the subpoena, we had conversation with counsel for the unified court system about the case and how we wanted to proceed. We did anticipate they were going to deny the special information. So we were able to give the unified court system a heads up on that. UCS ultimately made the application for remote testimony. The case is Rotten, W-R-O-T-T-E-N. They made that application under Rotten. And in part, they referenced COVID, but they also Reference broader issues, staffing issues, issues specific to the court at hand and how many clerks work there generally. They really did a very thorough job of explaining why it was appropriate, why it was an extreme need for the clerk to testify remotely. We ended up utilizing essentially the procedure that's in CPL Article 60 for remote testimony from special victims. And it worked out great, being that we had digital exhibits already set up. We were in a new courtroom with televisions on the wall, cameras in the room. It worked out great. I mean, I was able to see the clerk. She was able to see me and the jury, and it worked out pretty well. Excellent. Glad to hear that. I presume that the defendant tried to object to the clerk testifying remotely. Is that right? They did object to the clerk testifying remotely. Ultimately, the court made a finding that there were a lot of extraordinary circumstances warranting the remote testimony. COVID, obviously, I mean, it's a daunting task to ask somebody to travel three and a half hours anytime, but particularly during a pandemic, coupled with the fact that we'd be taking a clerk out of commission for at least a day, maybe two, and then another clerk, because there were some sort of alternating team schedule that we'd be messing up teams by having someone come up. So ultimately, the court reviewed a lot of the applicable case law and found that this was maybe the first case to do it, but that it was appropriate given that there were extraordinary circumstances with the distance and with the pandemic. Now, I would imagine that you may have had some concern that this could be an issue. Did you have any backup plans or other ways that you were planning on proving that prior DWI conviction if for some reason you weren't able to get the testimony of the clerk at all? Yes. So we ended up calling the clerk last just because of scheduling issues, but we ended up calling the clerk last and we'd already elicited testimony from the Department of Motor Vehicles on their work to essentially record the conviction 
I had already gotten testimony from my police officer involved on the admissions. And then I also referenced some of the case laws. The certificate was actually already in evidence. These are self-authenticating the certificates, but we were able to get the clerk to come in and kind of explain it. And that was very helpful, especially on the aggravated unlicensed operation charges, having that explanation. How did you overcome the defendant's challenge, you know, his essentially saying this conviction was not mine? How were you ultimately able to overcome that? Very consistent questioning of all the witnesses. And that was another reason we wanted the clerk there. I mean, the clerk was able to explain very succinctly and very persuasively, I thought, that what we all know as ADAs, right? The clerk swears everybody in. You have to plead under oath in county court that we have a lot of measures in place to ensure that someone is who they say they are when they plead guilty. Excellent. And did you have to bring in fingerprint records or anything of that nature? We did consider it. We also had other witnesses on standby that we were considering using, uh, a probation officer. Obviously, that could be a little tricky with the implicit reference that exists when you call a probation officer as a witness. We did have the now detective who was the arresting officer in the prior case on standby, ready to testify as well. You know, hey, I arrested this person for this, and I I don't know exactly what happened. You'd have to talk to a court clerk, but hey, here's the mugshot I took when I arrested him so that we'd have more backup evidence. But we felt the court clerk testified well and with scheduling and everything. It was Thursday afternoon when we were in a position to rest, and we wanted to do so to make sure that We didn't kind of extend the case more than necessary, kind of give it to the jury when they were ready for it. But we didn't end up using any fingerprint testimony in part because the cycles were not supported by fingerprints in light of the criminal impersonation conviction. Understand that. Yeah, so this is kind of a complicated one. What did you need to prove on the AUO under the different theories that was a challenge that normally would have been in this special information? Essentially, there's four elements to an AUO first, that someone is committing a DWI currently, that they're under a revocation for a DWI, that that revocation was in effect at the time the new DWI occurred, and that they were aware there was a revocation or suspension of some kind. Given that I had two different revocations, I kind of use the terms interchangeably. I know that's not 100% accurate. But when I say revocation, I do mean revocation or suspension. But so normally, when a defendant admits the special, they would be in a position to admit that the revocation's in effect, the specific type of revocation. And then the only issue really is whether they were committing a new 1192 offense, the, either the driving while intoxicated, per se, or common law, or NAI. DWAI, driving while ability impaired by alcohol, also qualifies for the AO first, which is why I always add it when I indict DWIs, if applicable. And so in this case, not having the special information, you really had to do a lot of extra legwork, I would imagine, to prove that up. Any tips for anyone who may encounter this in the future in that regard? Yeah. So that was another reason we wanted the court clerk. One of our revocations was a revocation in connection with the prior conviction, right? The the six-month revocation that's standard with all DWI misdemeanor or felony pleas. So the court clerk was super helpful. She talked about how 
the judge always suspends. And she wasn't in the courtroom, but she knows this is a legal requirement. She knows that the judge does this every single time. And she was able to testify about it. And that really cut off the argument that the defendant was never aware of this revocation. We also had the clerk from DMV. It was actually a local clerk who testified generally about DMV practice, but she talked about how they issue confirmatory revocation orders and how the orders get mailed out and how they have proof that these orders get to the post office. So there wasn't really much argument on the revocation from 2012 prior conviction. The argument was essentially that some of the court paperwork said this revocation is in effect for six months. And the defendant argued, well, obviously, right, six months goes by and now I'm good to drive. But DMV did a good job of explaining there's conditions that have to be met that other versions of the paperwork, the DMV paperwork, says at least six months. So that was very helpful. And then the other revocation was purely by mail. It was for a refusal. The refusal hearing was a default. I had nothing other than DMV mailing process to establish that that revocation was in effect. So it was very helpful that we had a representative from the DMV who was knowledgeable about the process and was able to testify in detail on it. And ultimately, it comes down to arguing it persuasively and carefully picking your jurors. I mean, I I had a mailman on the jury, (laughs) so I felt good about, you know, arguing trust the mail. But I think that's ultimately what worked for that second AUO. But it's about having a good DMV witness and, you know, layering your case and arguing it well. And just to touch back on the DMV paperwork, doesn't that also have some language in it? And I don't know the exact wording, but doesn't it say that you need to reapply to have your license uh, reinstated somewhere in the in the paperwork that's sent out? Or am I mistaken about that? No, it's got a ton of great detail on everything that needs to happen prior to the license being given back to the individual, right? It's a revocation. They take it away. I got a really nice tip from DMV. They suggested I order the address history. So I was able to present testimony and documentary evidence that the defendant, even though he didn't have a license, was going to DMV to update his address. So we were able to argue. We know his exact address. We know he's taking advantage of the system, making sure they know his correct address. But the paperwork is very explicit on what they need to do to get their license back. And then the paperwork is also, if you order the abstract in addition to the orders of revocation, very explicit on the fact that this revocation has been ongoing. It's got the changes on it or no changes in my case. Excellent. That's very helpful. Um, Anything else that you'd like to share with us about this case? I think one of the things that was probably particularly challenging was that this defendant decided to proceed pro se, correct? Did. He fired his attorneys on the morning of jury selection. So right before we were about to go in for our first panel. Yeah, that certainly can make things challenging. But yes, I think that this should be very helpful to anyone who would encounter this unusual situation in the future. I have actually not heard of a case of this happening before. And in addition to your case, heard of another case that ultimately pled in another 
upstate uh, Northern County recently within probably a few weeks of us speaking. So I'm concerned that this could potentially be something that comes up because of COVID. Do you think that that may have played in at all or factored into the defendant's decision or is it hard to say? I think that this defendant denied the special in part because of COVID and in part because of the distance of travel, right? I mean, knowing that it may be difficult to get a witness upstate from Long Island, knowing that he was going to object, it would create an appealable issue with the remote testimony. But I generally think that this defendant really just didn't want to admit the special, wanted to argue that he didn't receive the paperwork and that some of the other arguments he presented. I really think he was just perhaps a difficult kind of guy. I don't know if it would be a COVID thing more broadly, but maybe in part. Okay, excellent. And then any other tips? I would imagine you had to have social distancing measures and things like that in place. I know that one of my colleagues has done an interview, but anything that you found particularly helpful in trying a case in this new normal, I guess we could call it? Yeah. So it was very interesting to try a case at the time of COVID. First of all, my co-counsel and I went out and bought matching, professional, comfortable masks. And that was a very good investment to have a fresh mask, basically, you know, every time we went in, because you're talking a lot. It makes it way more comfortable. We also worked with our witnesses to make sure they all had a clear face shield that they were comfortable with. We had different kinds of clear face masks. They testified in the clear visor. They would take off the face mask, and they were socially distant from everyone. It's really about being flexible, though. I mean, there were times where I felt like I was sitting on a turret because I'm turning towards the judge, I'm turning towards the witness, I'm turning towards the jury, and it was almost a 360 kind of setup. The defendant was behind me during the trial. It was interesting, but it's really just about being flexible and you know knowing your case. It really wasn't too much of an imposition. Well, that's good to hear. I'm glad that you were able to adapt. And ultimately, my understanding is you were able to get a conviction on all counts? Yes, uh, guilty as charged, and we don't have a sentencing date yet. Excellent. Well, hopefully that will all proceed as expected. Um, Anything else you'd like to share with us before we go? Generally, this was kind of one of those cases that just seemed very ordinary, run-of-the-mill, but I've had a lot of really good DWI training. I did the NIPTI DWI Basic Trial Advocacy Program, the two-day course with Mary Tanner Richter. That was a really helpful course for the case. It was really helpful to kind of go to the basics, to the the phases and the, the presentation. It was a nice frame of reference to have for it. Ultimately, this was a refusal, and it went, as we hoped, in spite of everything with COVID and the pro se, but ultimately it was kind of one of those cases that seemed almost run of the mill, no no crash, nothing like that, but good facts to argue. And it was an arguable case and I'm glad we were able to argue it. Excellent. Well, I'm glad you found that all helpful and really appreciate you taking the time to share it with us. And I hope that it is of use to those of you listening. And for prosecutors, there will be additional materials on prosecutors encyclopedia, including some of the correspondence from OCA that Avi has agreed to share with us. So thank you all very much. I'll let you go.